beat the boss on a Monday afternoon. That was Bruce Springsteen and waiting on a sunny day, which we all are. Um, we were all complaining about how hot it was. Well, some of us were complaining about how hot it was in the summer, and now uh, we go, oh, where have those sunny days gone? Uh, you're listening to uh, Love and Science. It is a great pleasure to have you with us here on 93.2 uh, FM or BCFM Radio. Uh, dot uh, org and um you know, uh, Andrew is not with us this week, so it's all very sad. We're feeling very sad about that. You know, we're uh, wearing dark clothes. Um, but uh, uh, hopefully he'll be with us again next week. But um, in his place, we've got an old friend of the show who's not here anywhere near enough, is uh, uh, Dr. Robert Massey. So, Robert, it's great to have you with us. Um, Robert is from the Royal uh, Astronomical uh, Association. And uh, so you think big. You're always we do. thinking big, <laughs> and that's based in London. You're you're based uh, here in, quite often in Bristol because I, are you telling me you you work here from Bristol, but the organisation's based in London, so we we get to see you from time to time. Um, so it's been ages since we've seen you. Um, it, what's going on with the Royal Astronomical Society at the moment? Yeah, well, the big thing the big thing we're gearing up for is 2020 because that's the 200th anniversary of our foundation. And as with many of these august institutions, we try to be a bit less formal these days, but uh, we were founded in a pub in 1820 when a group of gentlemen oh. sat down for dinner and decided they wanted an astronomy organisation. Oh, all the best organisations. Exactly, I agree. Uh, and, and these days, you know, we try to be less about just having gentlemen sitting down to dinner. We, you know, we're, we're open, we're open to <laughs> <laughs> rather, a rather wider pool of people these days, Good. as long as you have an enthusiasm for the science and some professional interest in it. But what we're doing is looking for ways to commemorate that. And one of the big things we've had up and running for a couple of years is our so-called uh, RS200 Sky and Earth program. And this is, uh, for us, a lot of money, a million pounds of investment in various public engagement projects. And they're designed to bring people into astronomy and also uh, geophysics, because we, we cover that too, Earth sciences, uh, who aren't traditionally perhaps interested in it or haven't come across it before i hate to use words like unreached because i think it implies somehow that you know we're just sort of evangelicals it's not like that actually we just want to try and have a dialogue get people interested yeah. in things because you know we value people's views on it and ideas as well and so they cover things uh, like uh, working with prisoners in south london uh, we have a uh, national project uh, working with the prince's trust so looking at uh, so-called not in education, employment or training, neat young people. I had a fantastic uh, time with them in Cardiff the other day, uh, working with the Workers' Education Association in the north of England, and that's particularly targeting adults who are working but don't necessarily have a high level of education. And the aim is to kind of open up the horizons in thinking. And, uh, you know, autistic people as well as another group, an overarching one. And we're also working in Cornwall in, in the, uh, looking again at communities that haven't really engaged with this stuff before, Galway in the west of Ireland and South Africa. So a lot of different things going yeah. on, actually. It's it's really very, very busy and very vibrant, and we're very uh, very happy about the way it's going because we're getting really good feedback. The The other issue is that, the, or the way it works, is that the partners shape the projects. So we encouraged people like um, Bounce Back, who deal with uh, prison education. We said to them, you know, you apply for the money and you work with prisoners to say how it would work rather than us going in there and saying this is what you need you know we're telling you what to do so I've probably talked a lot about this but we're, we're really enthusiastic about it all. Well fantastic we wish you all the very best with it it, so it sounds like some fabulous projects there um, just to, if somebody said to me what do you think the Royal Astronomical uh, Society does so I'd say well it's interested in space and stuff like that <laughs> I know a little bit more about it but I mean when you said it was founded in a pub which is a, a marvellous uh, uh, beginning 
what were they actually founded to do, and what and has their mission changed dramatically over the years? Well, the the, the society was founded to promote and advance the science of astronomy and, la- and later geophysics for historical reasons, uh, and. I don't think that central mission's changed that much. I think that the point the points that arise the way we deliver that has changed an enormous amount. Um, what we still do that is pretty much the same as it was back then. We still publish scientific discoveries. We still convene scientific meetings. We maintain a really amazing library, which these days is mostly more about historical works because you know people look up research online. They don't tend to necessarily even go into a library for that these days. But there are amazing historical things like you know first editions of uh, Galileo's works and all that kind of thing in there. Um, but I think. So the main difference is that we actually, it's a much bigger sector, it's a much more professional one. There, were hard, there was hardly anybody being paid to do professional research back in the early 19th century, and that obviously changed uh, in the 20th century, and that's when we had the sort of explosion of scientific discovery as a result. So that, I think, is one of the biggest changes. We also, obviously, rather than just being open to gentlemen sitting down for dinner, we, we, we don't discriminate on anything other than the scientific ability these days. <laughs> well, it, it, it's... Um we're always excited about anything astronomical on, on this show, partly because it has a tremendous uh, drama value, uh, but also because uh, Andrew, uh, who's not here this week, of course, is um, a real um, astronomy buff, and uh, so he's uh, uh, enthusiastic, uh, enthusiastically contributing all the time on, on those issues. Um, that brings me to our first story uh, this week that we're going to look at. I mean, at any one time, if you say what's sci- in the science news, well, uh, the, the list is almost endless. So much is happening in scientific research uh, uh, around the world. Um, so we always just try and pick uh, some things that we think um, uh, we could talk about sensibly and, and uh, that would be of interest in general to people. And with Robert here... I thought we have to talk about the first exomoon. Now, this is a story we would actually um, have talked about a little bit earlier, uh, possibly last week, uh, but we were doing other things last week. Um, When we talk about exoplanets, what that means, if I get this right, is that these are planets going around other suns, other stars, way outside of our own solar system. And an exomoon is a moon going around one of one of those planets. I've got that right, yeah? Okay. So uh, tell us about this one, Robert. This is a story you've seen. I, I, yeah, I, the, the, I can't this, believe uh, you wouldn't have. No, absolutely. This, this particular discovery, uh, it shouldn't surprise us in a sense, because if you have lots of planets around other stars, which we now know we definitely have, there are thousands of them have been detected, although I stress hardly any of them have been seen because we've yeah. seen them through indirect methods. Yeah. It, it shouldn't surprise us that those planets, like the ones in our own solar system, also have moons around them. And that's what's happened in this case. So they used the uh, Kepler data from the Kepler Observatory. What Kepler did was look at, I think it was about 100,000 stars, and it monitored the way that their light fluctuated. And what was happening with these stars was that as a planet it moved in front of them, the light dipped down a bit. So in none of these cases was it possible to see the planet, but the probe looked at it and it measured the dip in light. And in this particular case, they saw a dip in light from the planet. And then about three and a half hours later, they saw a dip in light from the moon that was following it. Now, it's a really big moon. It's as big as Neptune. So quite quite unlike anything we see see in our own solar system. Yes, yeah. And and, and actually planets uh, or, or bodies of that size. And of course this one, of course you could be in theory quite big and not 
very dense. Uh, but in fact, this one is, is also really dense, which means its gravity would be huge. And we'd yeah, be... Uh, maybe- We'd really struggle, wouldn't we, to stand uh, yeah, on Yeah, but surface. this is not going to be a place. It's very no. unlikely there's advanced life on this pl- this no. planet or on this moon. Yeah. Uh, as soon as you have something with a high gravitational field, that makes it more difficult anyway. We don't know much about, say, its temperature and that kind of thing, although as it's fairly close to the star, I assume that's going to be fairly high. Uh, you know, th- none of these things make it a particularly good place for life. But what it does say is that if there are moons out there, and there are a lot of moons, we might just say that we find one of these larger planets, perhaps further from its star, where it's a bit more comfortable, and it might have an Earth-like moon going around it. So it's a bit Star Wars-y, but you yeah. can imagine yeah. life not living on a planet itself, but on one of its moons, if that's big enough. There's yes. no reason in principle that couldn't happen. Yes. I mean, and, and I, I'm, I suppose in many ways it would look a bit like our setup at the moment. If you think, you try and imagine, well, what, what would it be like to be living on a moon? Well, if the moon was habitable we would see perhaps a much larger object in the sky that we were revolving around. But we it's not something that would be... We couldn't get our heads around it. We'd go, oh, no, that makes sense. You know, it, it, I, it, I, I see this thing, from our point of view, going across the sky, but it would be a much larger object. It, it would Presumably what you would have is a large planet that you were in orbit around. Yeah. You'd see that in your sky yeah, yeah, lots yeah. of the time. Yeah. And also the star, because yeah. the star would still be providing you with heat and light, so that would still be essential. But it would just be... I suppose there would be periods of time you go behind the planet you go into real darkness across the whole planet unlike the experience on earth so there there would be differences but in principle i don't see any reason why some of these moons at least couldn't be habitable yeah amazing that is that is exciting possibility now there's something and i i love i love this this is a story this is actually a story within a story um, so we're going to be talking about a planet which has been named the goblin or a planetoid, maybe, but it's, it's a, thing, a thing called the Goblin. Um, it is a very, very long way away from us. It is in our solar system. Um, but it's been discovered whilst looking for a planet which is sometimes known as Planet Nine. So, Robert, <laughs> give, fill us in the background. Let's start. Sure. First of all, let's start with Planet Nine. Okay. Well, the. <laughs> Planet Nine has come and gone. So until about uh, 15 years ago, we all grew up learning there were nine planets in the solar system and Pluto was the outermost one. And then the uh, International Astronomical Union that makes the the definitions for these things removed Pluto of its full planetary status and it became a slightly less important dwarf planet. Those Plutonians Plutonians must have been furious. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) So so one of the probes that went off to to visit New Horizons, actually, by the time it got there, it had changed status. started off heading for a planet and by the time they got there it wasn't was no longer going that way but the the point is that they still or or some astronomers still think there is another object further out Uh, now it could be quite a long way from the sun it could be very very faint but quite big yeah and the reason they think it might be out there is because there are these objects in the so-called kuiper belt which is a big cloud of comet-like things beyond pluto and around pluto and some of the, the orbits of those suggest that there is another object out there. So there's been some work going on trying to find it. No one's found it yet. And there are people who disagree violently as well. They, do, they yeah. just disagree it's necessary. Yeah. However, the goblin is uh, more evidence that there might be Planet Nine out there. And the goblin was found in that search. And it's another of these weird objects. It, it goes on a highly elongated orbit. So sometimes it's relatively close. Well, yeah. It's still a long way. It's still out beyond yes, Pluto. Yeah. And sometimes it's 
about 50 times as far from the sun as Pluto. Now, that's yeah. an incredible 300 billion kilometres yeah. in the sun. Yeah. And to give, put it in perspective, we are 150 million kilometres away, so a huge distance away. Yeah. And, and the discovery of these things and other objects, so another one called Sedna, for example, that have similar characteristics, it might just be that there are millions of things like this out there. It's, yeah. a, it's a very intriguing prospect. And because so they're so far away, we, we haven't seen, seen it, them. Um, we're, we're only now seeing them because of... Uh, the, advanced technology. Even the best telescopes in the world really struggle to see them because they're so faint that if you uh, you need a long exposure, you need a very a telescope with a very large mirror, you need a sensitive detector, and you need to be able to scan enough of the sky over not, not just, not just uh, one night but usually a couple of nights that you can see them moving and confirm they're out there. That's why it's so difficult to find. That's also why if Planet Nine is out there that it's so difficult to find it because you're, you're looking for something very, very faint and making sure that it moves in a particular way. So um, it takes about 40,000 years, I've read, something, somewhere between 35 and 40,000 years for this thing to have a year, in other words, to make one rotation around the sun. So that gives us some idea of how, of how far away it is. But I should, should make it clear, so unless there's any confusion, Planet 9, or sometimes called Planet X, um, we don't know that that exists. In other words... Uh, looking at the orbits of planets that we do know exist, they behave slightly weirdly, slightly less uh, than you would expect, unless one explanation is there's this other planet. Let's call it Planet X, Planet 9. Goblin, however, does exist. We yes. know that. We've verified that. And, and um, it was called that, uh, apparently, because um, uh, it was discovered around Halloween 2015, and uh, they thought, well, you're looking for a name. Let's go, let's call it something Halloweeny. So it's been called been called the Goblin. Um, it's apparently its name at the moment. I love these names. This is this is this official name is 2015 TG387. How it's what a, tri- that trips off trips the tongue, off doesn't it? Tongue. <laughs> Absolutely. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Indeed you are. And uh, Robert Massey and I are uh, talking about science in the news and uh, behind the news. Uh, Robert is from the Royal Astronomical Society. And um, we're, we're kind of, well, we're staying with uh, science. Oh, by the, by the way, I meant to say that's uh, uh, Alice Roberts who does our ident there. You're listening to Love and Science. And uh, Alice Roberts is doing the um, Royal Institution Christmas Lectures uh, this year. It's entitled Who Am I? I'm telling you that w- uh, without any hope that there are tickets available, but because it, it will be uh, on television. So uh, look out for that. It's our, our own homegrown uh, Alice Roberts. Um, so uh, we're staying with matters astronomical because we're going, well, first of all, one of the great astronomical stars of science uh, very sadly died uh, earlier this year, uh, Professor Stephen Hawking. Uh, But um, the the reason we're talking about him uh, today, I mean... He has to be one of the one of the great figures, not just of the twenty first, twentieth, and twenty first centuries, but one of the greatest science, science scientific figures of all time. Just before he died, with within um, uh, days of, uh, of of him dying, um, he 
completed uh, some work, or he heard that uh, some some work had been uh, completed uh, about something. This is going to sound really weird, but we didn't get the chance to explain it. It's called black hole entropy and soft hair. I love I love this kind of terminology. Um, it's his final scientific paper, and um, it's uh, been released. Uh, and uh, you can actually read it online. I've had a look. It's incredibly technical and dense, uh, but fortunately there are people around uh, who who can explain it to us. Um, So, Robert, uh, as as I understand it, I'm going to try and lay this out, and you you just tell me whether or not I've I've got hold of the right idea. So uh, Stephen Hawking made a contribution. He added to the understanding of Albert Einstein. Einstein, back in 1915, predicted the existence of black holes. We now know that that, that they're there. Um, And uh, Einstein thought, well, they can be described in a certain way. But uh, Stephen Hawking said, I'm going to add something to this. Uh, They have got temperature. They actually have a a, a temperature. And um, there's, you have to add in something else here that uh, the the problem that Stephen Hawking has been trying to solve about black holes is is, is to do with um, the loss of information. Now, apparently, this shouldn't happen. We shouldn't lose information. But because Hawking said black holes have got heat, one of the things that happens with warm objects is they give off heat, and they they go cold, they disappear. So, in theory... A black hole could, over millions of years, evaporate. And that's a problem because... Uh, am I doing OK so far? Mm-hmm. No, because, I'll, 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 <laughs> I'm just witcher, witcher, in, yeah. wittering on here. Um, because the laws of science, the laws of uh, physics, tell us that we shouldn't lose what's, what's called information. It's a bit, bit like a detective story. If somebody's committed a murder, you should, if you look carefully enough, be able to figure out some information about what's happened. It ne- the information never disappears. It's the same with science. But if a black hole can evaporate, then the idea is you could lose information. Now, ha- that can't happen. And what Hawking talks about is what's called... Well, he, he refers to this um, as soft hair. So can you pick the story up from there? Yeah, I mean, essentially, I think, I think you're right. The, so Einstein's idea was that black holes would have uh, mass, charge, and spin. So you could weigh them, they'd have an electrical charge, and you could see how fast they were rotating. And that should be enough to define them. Yeah. Now, the problem is that quantum mechanics, which also caused problems for Einstein in other areas, uh, argued against that and said that things falling into them, I mean, it's a bit hesitate to use the word falling in, it's always complicated yeah. with black holes, but yeah. if they grow in mass, any mass, that they accrue, there should be some imprint of the original matter that went in there. Right. And so, if, for example, it swallows a solar system. Yes. Then, then you should have some imprint of that. Now, OK, yeah. if, if we go into a black hole, it's bad news. Actually, <laughs> it's, it's very unlikely because even though there are an awful lot of them, uh, you know, space is a very big place. But yeah. in those circumstances, something, something going in, you would expect to see some evidence of what it was that went in originally rather than all evidence of its existence being erased. Yeah. Uh, and so Hawking tried to solve this problem, and it looks as though he's gone some way towards doing that in this final paper. It's interesting that his legacy is so powerful that he does that, you know, the last uh, yeah. last years of his life. And 
the concept of soft hair is that there are these the, the photons, basically the radiation around the black hole, the stuff that makes up light and heat and so on, yeah. would have some imprint of what was going on inside as the matter went into it. So that's the soft soft hair concept, I think, in a nutshell. That the the halo outside the black hole black hole has information on things as they fall in, and maybe that helps with this this paradox. It's called uh, the information paradox. The idea that uh, one theory predicts the information is lost, and the other one predicts that it has to be retained. So he's trying to go some way towards solving that in this. Now, I admit, like you, when I look at papers like this, I struggle. It's a complicated field. There aren't a vast number of people able to really critically analyze it. Yeah. But it would be it would be an important discovery, not least because there are lots and lots of black holes in the universe. Uh, centers of galaxies have them. Uh, there are probably many in the Milky Way, the galaxy we live in, we just can't see. But space is so big, they simply move around. And you generally only are aware of their existence because of what they do to their surroundings. So they drag material in or they make uh, stars go around them very fast, particularly in the, in the centers of galaxies. Yes, I, um, I think Stephen Hawking was actually involved in, in the actual uh, proper discovery of, of, or the formulation of how black holes behave. Uh, because because uh, when he started his career, people weren't sure that they... That they existed. Uh, well, they weren't sure that they existed, and they and they, although they, the hypothesis had been around for a long time. I think even in the 18th century, the idea was that you could have an object if light travelled at a finite speed, whose gravitational field was so powerful, light couldn't get out. But yeah. you know, hence the term black hole. Yeah. Uh, and what. Hawking did was lay the groundwork to understand more of that. And then in the 70s, uh, we found sources of X-rays. And so what was happening was that uh, material was going into the vicinity of black holes, going around very quickly, getting very hot. And when you do the maths, you work out the only thing that could be driving that was a black hole. So we first of all found them near stars, and now we find them in the centre of almost every galaxy as well. So there's there's very few people now who would doubt their existence. Including our own, including the the Milky Way? Including the Milky Way. There's a black hole in the centre of our galaxy. Don't worry too much. It's (laughs) 25,000 light years away, so we're not in any immediate danger. Yes. And and I was just going to ask on that, just go slightly deviating away, but while while we've got you in the the studio... um, is it possible then that black holes have something to do with the birth of galaxies? If there's one right in the middle, might you infer that it has something to do with creating or maybe driving? Because we know that galaxies seem to rotate. Maybe something yeah, to do with I mean, that. Mo- most things in the universe rotate. You have angular momentum, so once you set something spinning a little bit, it, yeah. it really doesn't stop. It just spins up in different ways. Right. Now, but the, but you're right in saying that most, almost every galaxy appears to have a black hole in, and there is an argument about whether they're intrinsically essential for the for the galaxy to form, so they help material come together, or whether they form as a byproduct. But there there is certainly a, a school of thought that says a black hole in the centre acts as some kind of anchor for a galaxy to form around it, and they help bring the the stellar material, all the gas and dust together to make that process happen. Uh, because gravity gravity's influence extends over an infinite distance. It gets weaker and weaker and weaker. Weaker, but even if you are tens of thousands of light years from a black hole, to a certain extent you feel its force, particularly these very big ones that we find in the centre of galaxies. And the idea there is that you know lots of smaller ones merge together and, and they slowly build up something quite big and, and monstrous, actually, sometimes billions of suns of matter there. Well, we've been talking about the story that uh, Stephen Hawking's last paper before he died has now been uh, published by uh, his colleagues. Um, there's a there's a lovely um, uh, 
piece. Uh, I think this is the, well, this is from the uh, from the Guardian during during the week, and um, one of the uh, scientists that worked with him on on this was someone called Malcolm Perry. Not the only one, but the, it was one of two or three other scientists who worked uh, on this with Stephen Hawking. And uh, it's just a, a couple of lines here. It says he wasn't aware how ill Hawking's was, and he called to give him an update. It may have been the last scientific exchange he had, and uh, Malcolm Perry says, it was very difficult for Stephen to communicate, and I was put on a loudspeaker to explain where we'd got to. When I explained it, he simply produced an enormous smile. I told him we'd got somewhere, and he knew the final result. Uh, very... Uh, very moving story there. Um, so thanks for helping us uh, uh, explain that a bit, Robert. There's a, there's another one. Now this is this is really weird. Again, there's lots of weird stories going on at the moment. Um, bizarre particles, it says, keep flying out of Antarctica's ice. This reminds me of his dark materials, you know, <laughs> Philip Pullman. <laughs> bizarre particles keep flying. Now these aren't particles that you can see. Um, but they may have a shattering effect. Ha, see what I did there um, for uh, our view of particle uh, physics. So, um, if I again, I'll just try very briefly uh, to set this up. There is a couple of experiments going uh, in Antarctica. Uh, one's in a balloon, I think, uh, that floats around above Antarctica. There's another, uh, which is a, it's called Anita. Uh, which stands for Antarctic Impulsive Transit Antennae. Uh, there's another uh, experiment which is called the Ice Cube Experiment, which um, actually goes down... Um, you could, there are surface buildings, but the, 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 there are tunnels which go down a mile uh, below the Antarctic surface. And uh, they're, they're particle detectors. They're, lo they're, they're looking for particles, and they've found... These weird particles that don't behave like they should, that fly out of the Earth, um, sometimes, um, uh, I, think, I think they were saying um, once every 10 years over a certain area. I mean, they're able to detect lots of them, but on average, these particles are coming out something like once every 10 years for a square uh, metre or something. Um, and um, they don't behave like they should. I, you, you, I know particle physics isn't essentially your thing. I'm not asking you as an expert on this, but you, you probably know a lot more than I do. Yeah, it, it's it's a really interesting story. This one, it's it, it's really intriguing. So, the, the, to set the context, you've got a, uh, a balloon floating above Antarctica, or used or deployed above Antarctica, and what this is doing I, mainly, it has an antenna, and I assume the expectation was they would be detecting things coming in from space, so cosmic rays. But what they found, as well as that, were these occasional bursts from beneath the ice. Now, that shouldn't be happening, or at least within the standard model, the so-called idea yeah. we have of the way that particles yeah. work. It shouldn't be happening, the way we're built up of <clears throat> atoms yeah. and fundamental particles within them. So what's really intriguing about this is that happens at all. The only things that we're really aware of that make it all the way through the Earth are these super light particles called neutrinos that almost nothing stops them. They could travel through a light year of lead and not be worried about it. But these seem to be very different. They seem to be more massive, more energetic. It's, it's a real puzzle. And it challenges some of the ideas because we, although it's true that 
not all the answers are in place. There is this, this the standard model is, is reasonably well accepted. We know about the particles that make up atoms, well, the nucleus of atoms called quarks, and they build protons and neutrons, and then eventually the, the stuff you and I are made of, uh, electrons in orbit around them or, or, or associated with them, and then you've got things that carry force like uh, electromagnetic field particles, bosons, you know, light and heat, we're all familiar with that. Yeah. There, are, there are more exotic things within that, but they've been detected in particle accelerators. Yeah. These, though, are quite different. And that's what's so intriguing. We just yeah. don't, you know, we just don't really understand it. And I think the scientists at CERN will be interested. And they found the Higgs boson. Yeah. And maybe they, you know, the cynic might say, was your job over then? You've completed <laughs> yeah, the standard yeah. model. But it very much looks as though this isn't the case. There's yeah, still we, something really weird going on. And we should say, of course, that the, the, the Higgs boson, the, the, the whole point of that was they said, OK, we have this thing which we've referred to as the standard model. So we think this is how the world works, as, you, as you've said. We should have this many par- these many particles with these kinds of properties, and this is what they should be doing. And if, if we're right, there'll be this thing called the Higgs boson, which they then went on to find. But now they've found particles which don't seem to fit at all. In fact, I think everybody's accepting they, do, they don't fit. So, and, and also, we should say, scientists love it when this happens. Because, yeah, because you're uh, right. no, yeah, no, scientists right. aren't out to say this is what's going on, I'm going to prove it. They're out to find out what's going on. And when, and when evidence comes in which is, challenges that, then we go, well, hey, this is a whole new interesting field uh, because we're, we're getting closer to what, what's really happening. Exactly. I mean, who wouldn't be? If they were working in that field, this is something that overturns some of the ideas potentially, invites people to, to, to think again about the way the model of the universe works. And, of course, it's exciting. Uh, the other thing to remember is that even even from the astronomy side, we, we have something we think is most, most people accept is there called dark or invisible matter. Yeah. And this dark matter stuff appears to make up 85% of the matter in the universe. So yeah. the stuff you and I are made of is only 15% of the matter we see so or detect. Yeah. So, yeah. It, you know, who knows? Maybe there's a connection here. Maybe this is another candidate for yeah. this really weird stuff that seems to pervade yeah. the universe. And we, we have no idea what it's made of. Yeah, maybe it's opening a doorway to, to understand that. Well, um, uh, Andrew uh, Glester, uh, who's uh, normally with, uh, with me presenting the show... Uh, caught up with Derek Fox, who's one of the authors of uh, a paper all about these strange particles. He'd already had a conversation with him, uh, because it would be too long for us to play all of it, uh, about um, how, in fact, this does challenge the standard model, what we normally think is, is, is going on, that Robert and I have just talked about. And, uh, and uh, Andrew went on to uh, ask him the obvious question uh, then about this. What's the kind of implication, though, of it being outside the standard model? What's the implication for the standard model? What's the implication for particle physics in the future? Well, uh, let me say first that it is well known that the standard model is not a complete theory of the fundamental interactions of nature. It cannot explain neutrino oscillations. It doesn't create dark matter, which we really need to you know, glue our galaxies together and, and produce the... Um, power spectrum of the cosmic microwave background that we see. Um, and it doesn't uh, really account for dark energy, although that is maybe even a, a far, far, farther future <laughs> challenge than, than the dark matter. Um, so, it's, so it's not a complete description of nature. And we have been, you know, sort of feeling our way as a community, like the astrophysicists and the physicists, trying to attack different angles in hopes of uh, sort of cracking it open and getting a lead uh, for the next key next steps. 
And one of the things that's happened, you, as, as you and, I, and many of your listeners are aware, is that uh, physicists global around the globe banded together to build the Large Hadron Collider and to run it, you know, and operate it and analyze those data, build the detectors. <laughs> I mean, this is an immense effort. I guess I've seen it estimated at 10 billion, you know, euros uh, to date. Uh, or for the for the for the nominal lifetime of the experiment, so it's an immense effort, and of course we had a tremendous success there detecting the Higgs and now measuring its properties and and under and understanding really you know sort of cleaning up that final corner of the standard model that was that had been left until then undiscovered. But I really think we would not have put this much energy into the LHC or even necessarily built it and operated it as we have if we didn't think that this was a good way to push beyond the standard model. The goal, really, to understand the standard model and to study the Higgs, but to push beyond and discover new particles is driven in large part by these two supersymmetric theories of the fundamental interactions, which uh, solve a couple of problems, you know, theoretical problems or, uh, if you will, aesthetic problems uh, with the standard model by postulating a, a sort of doubling of the number of particles that exist. Every particle has a supersymmetric partner particle. And the masses, the characteristic masses for many of these particles, if not all, are around one TeV, which is you know, well within the range where LHC can be producing them in proton-proton collisions. And the among those supersymmetric partner particles is a least mass supersymmetric partner, which is a natural candidate for the dark matter. I mean, one needs to really obviously study. <laughs> The particle and its inner and 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 other supersymmetric partner particles interactions in detail to demonstrate that, but it's it, it's it's out there, and it ought to be produced in the Big Bang, and it ought to live for a very long time. So it's and and with very weak interactions, so it's a good dark matter candidate, and also um, this sort of next to least supersymmetric partner particle, which, as I said, in some versions of supersymmetry, is actually relatively long lived. I mean, in our paper, we talk about a ten nanosecond lifetime which doesn't sound like a lot, but actually for a very massive particle, it's, it's extraordinarily long. So we need something. I think, I think what we say is that the properties of this particle are anticipated by theoretical models of the supersymmetric okay. partner particles. Yeah. Okay. And one of the active efforts among both uh, ATLAS and CMS detector collaborations is to search for long-lived massive charge particles. So why haven't they found them? If you're wondering if they've ruled out, if LAC has ruled out supersymmetry, no, they've not ruled out supersymmetry. They're, they've constrained the, the sort of minimum masses and maximum cross sections for these supersymmetric interactions. And so, any model that you want to develop to explain the um, Anita events within the context of supersymmetry has to live with those constraints. Um, and it, I should say, we have not done the simulations to show that that's possible. Um, but I think that's interesting work that lies ahead of us um, to actually check. But yeah, LHC just needs to continue going, collecting more data, right? And the expectation is if, if, if supersymmetry is really true, then LHC is actually the facility that you need to ultimately to discover these particles and to study them. 
And uh, that was uh, our own Andrew Glester uh, talking to Dr. Derek Fox, who's uh, a co-author of uh, a paper explaining all those weird things jumping out of the ice, those particles that we can't quite fit, and scientists find out. Swift, weird. welcome Very to awesome. New York. Uh, you're listening to Love and Science. And um, I'm joined... Uh, as I've been telling you through the show, by uh, uh, Dr. Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical uh, Society. Um, we're getting away from the heavens, uh, well, not totally, but partly. Uh, uh, there's a report out today. Uh, um, in fact, it uh, occurred just before midnight last night, I notice it was released. Uh, the UK steps towards zero carbon economy. The UK is taking a tentative leap towards radical green future with zero emissions. This is a, a response to something we talked about last week on the show. The Committee on Climate Change uh, from uh, the United Nations uh, gave guidance uh, uh, or, or, or gave a very alarming report and uh, the, uh, about climate change, how really we need to um, uh, take action urgently because we've got about 20, 20 years uh, in order to uh, get our house in order before truly catastrophic things start to happen. And uh, our own government is uh, making noises uh, about that. Uh, apparently, uh, we can expect uh, more uh, revelations in the week, so we'll hold on to see, perhaps talk more about it uh, in the show next week. Um, but um, uh, the... Uh, uh, Climate Minister uh, Claire Perry uh, uh, reportedly told the BBC News that uh, this report was very stark and a sober piece of work, a piece of good work, she said, uh, and uh, the, the government is going to take uh, various uh, actions about it to raise debate in society. Uh, the UK's current target is a reduction of 80% of emissions by 2050, uh, but we have to do considerably uh, better than that. I noticed that Trump was saying saying uh, yesterday that, uh, yeah, these things, the climate changes, but it's going to change back, <laughs> based on <Please>. absolutely <laughs> nothing started, at all, yeah. which is rather distressing. But there you go. Uh, that's what he would say, isn't it? Nobody's surprised by that. But it's rather frightening uh, when you've got people saying, look, this is real, it's happening, you have to do something about it. So we'll see what it means. Uh, the government does not appear to have um, uh, done anything about subsidies for green energy and uh, promoting electric cars, all that kind of thing. So we're hoping uh, that there will be some proper changes. The trouble with politicians, of course, it's easy to shoot at them, is um, that uh, they're, they're in it for something else, uh, which is to stay in power. Um, uh, and we can't tar all uh, politicians with the same brush, but it's a huge driver for them. Uh, so uh, one has to uh, hopefully... Uh, be optimistic that the debate between people who are producing the evidence and the people who have the power to do something about it uh, can uh, figure out something sensible. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's uh, move on. We've got we've probably got time for one more story, and uh, th that is about faces. Psychologists. Uh, uh, face off reveals that humans can recognise 5,000 people. I have to say, I find this very hard to believe since uh, I, I'm genuinely... Uh, people come up to me and say, Hi, Malcolm, how are you? And I'm thinking, who the hell is this? I don't know. Oh, it's my, my sister. Right, OK. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not that bad. Um, but uh, apparently psychologists at the University of York embarked on a, a, a study uh, to find out... Um, how 
uh, how we uh, recognize faces. And um, new research suggests the average person can recognize 5,000 faces. Do you find that surprising? I, I, I find it very surprising, given that I have the same experience of you, where people come up to me in the street and say hello, and I have to really scratch my head as to whether I've seen, whether, whether, well, whether I actually recognize them or whether I've seen them. And I think the, yeah. the worst example was at a conference last year when a guy we'd had working for us as an intern as a month, uh, I totally forgot what he looked like, and he said, hi, it's Richard. And then after, after a few minutes, it clicked in. So I'm not sure I'm at the high end of that scale. I'm probably down near the thousand level. Uh, but it's, yeah, it is intriguing that we're so good at it. And it's clearly more than we would need in a, a sort of primitive ancestral setting. You know, I don't think if you're living in a village with 30 or 40 people, you need to recognize 5,000 faces. No, so no. it is perhaps just something about the way the brain's developed to be that capable. And I'm not sure what the evolutionary advantage of recognizing that many people is. But no. It clearly seems to be the case. And, so. and I expect in, it's, it's uh, only now that it's possible that, uh, you know, if you're looking at people on Facebook. Well, well, and yeah, of course I was, was going to say, now we all need to recognise a thousand Facebook friends. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> they put even if they even put face photos up. No, I mean, uh, it's intriguing for me partly. I've got a, uh, a friend of mine who's uh, who has face blindness as well, uh, prognosophia, and um, I, I was that must be intriguing and. and you know, I suppose it's like one of those conditions you just manage. You, you just work around it and look at the other features. So, yeah. you know, the idea that you're at the very low end of that range as well is is fascinating too. Or being able to recognise ten thousand and more faces. I mean, do you do you remember the names? You know, because that's the thing I have as well. <laughs> yes. Is I recognise people, and it takes me quite a while and yeah. some subtle questions to work out who I'm talking. You're to. either a name person or a face I, person. I'm sure that's right. Yeah, I think you're right. Apparently, the scientists at York asked volunteers to spend an hour recalling as many faces as they could from their private lives recovering old friends uh covering old friends work colleagues and so on and so forth then they went on to famous faces and so on they did a second part of the study there are so shown thousands of photographs of famous people and tested on how many they recognized and that's how they came up with their five thousand figure anyway there's somebody sitting next to me now i have no idea who it is don't recognize you at all could you possibly be John Ford from the next show? Uh, yes. Ah, there you are. I'd better fade you up as well. There you are. <laughs> Doesn't recognise the equipment either. No, there you are. <laughs> I'm always doing this. This is terrible. John, yeah. hello. Nice to see you. Good to see you as well, yeah. Yeah. yeah you should yeah. have done that story last week when you forgot your guest's name. <laughs> yeah. What was that well, before? Well, to be, I'll defend myself. I didn't really forget my no. guest name. No. no. But uh, I did forget my glasses. You <laughs> helped me out rather marvellously, so I was making... Yeah. yeah. And, and are, you, can you, are you good with faces and names? Um... I'm, I'm all right with faces, yeah. No, I, I, I can understand that we... Was it 5,000, the number? Yeah. I can understand that you recognise 5,000 faces, but remembering 5,000 names is another matter, yeah, isn't it? I mean, it's tricky. <laughs> no chance. And I, I'm, I mean, I, I quite often give talks in, 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 in public, you know, conferences <clears> and things like that, and quite often somebody will bound, bound up to me and say, oh, hi, Malcolm, you know, hi, it's great to see you again. And I'm genuinely embarrassed because I... I <laughs> I guess I'm not that great at remembering faces, actually, because because uh, it's a struggle for me. And you and you keep giving clues like, so how are you? Did you have far to travel? You know, where did you come from? To, and and they give you some vague answer, and you're desperately trying to diagnose, you know, where where they yeah. come from. Yeah. Anyway, John, what, what what did we leave out of the show this week? You, you missed out all sorts of things. Um, but I, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, on this day in science, I'll go with this because Robert's here. Um, this day in 1997, anyone? F- f- 
I think Robert knows actually what happened on this day in 1997 by the looks of it. Scratching his head, I have to say. The Cassini spacecraft carrying the the Huggins probe was launched from Cape Canaveral. I remember that well, yeah. Yeah, 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, 21 now, obviously. Yeah. But, um, and it was terminated, or meant to have been terminated on my birthday, actually, in 2017, 15th of mm-hmm. September. But I think it, it carried on a little longer, didn't it? it? it maybe yeah. not exactly the day. It is yeah. over now. There was a oh, it is over now, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. It, it's, uh, it but it does, you know, space is so big, it takes such a long time to... Yeah, 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 yeah. They crashed it into Saturn, didn't they, I think? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, no, it burnt up on, on, on yeah. entry, as yeah. it were. Yeah, deliberately. Deliberately. You know, yeah, they yeah. deliberately questioned it would burn up and erase all trace of itself, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, this day in 1997. Wow! Wow! I mean, twenty. I mean, the nineties don't seem that long ago for me, but uh, twenty years ago, when you put it into context, it's uh, it is amazing. And my favourite story about that is I interviewed a man once who made a, a, a part of that. Uh, a probe that went and, and, and down onto Titan, the moon of Saturn. Uh, our our ex president, John yeah. Zarnecki, I know, know yeah. very well. And floated in a sea of methane. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thanks for, thanks for romantic, reminding us about that, uh, John. Uh, stay tuned for John Ford, uh, who's going to be uh, getting Bristol home after this. Uh, unfortunately, there's no news today, uh, but uh, uh, you, you, you just stay with the programme. Well, no news is good news. No news is good news. Uh, it's been great to have uh, Robert Matthews. Thanks, Robert, for joining us. Uh, Join us again next week for another edition of Love and Science, and uh, have yourselves a very good evening.